All right, bear with us. Thank you so much for your patience. I hope you had time to look at, uh, look at Luke or enjoy the fellowship of the people around you. Does anybody feel like um, in the last four months, the idea of uh, growing God's kingdom just kind of got a little bit more complicated? Anybody? If you're an elder or a deacon uh, or you're married to one, if you saw them in the past couple weeks, um, you know uh, how much work has gone into making even this possible. I remember when the hardest part of coming to church was having to loop around because of the construction on Westerly. That was a hard week, right? Um, and that's just, that's just to meet. That's just to meet. Uh, consider now going out there and, and sharing the gospel with people. Um, with a mask on from like six feet away, or if you dare have allergies, they run away from you. Um, and many of the people you're talking to, like if they were overwhelmed before, how about now? Um, or if they were busy before, how about the busyness that's going on in their heads right now? Um, with all that in mind, it seemed, it might seem kind of impossible to get out there and talk to people about eternity. Because the now part is hard enough. But let me encourage you, friends, because that's what today's text is about. While the, the nuances and methods of how we talk to people about salvation have certainly changed, the means by how people are saved has not changed and will not change. Because salvation is not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. That's where we're going today. And today, as we continue through the book of Luke, Jesus has continued on his road to Jerusalem. And he's teaching his disciples about what it means to be a part of his kingdom or what, must, what it means to be saved. When will this come? People asked. And he replied, it's already here. And what kinds of people get in, they asked. And he replied, people who have childlike faith. And then on top of all that last week, a rich and powerful and seemingly very moral man, the kind of person most of us would consider a first-round draft pick to be an elder here, or maybe somebody you think for sure is getting in the kingdom, he fails the test. He walks away. And the reply of the crowd is, then who can be saved? Who's getting into this kingdom, Jesus? Are you going to be there by yourself? And I think it's clear from context when they ask the question, who can be saved? That was a rhetorical question. To them, this kingdom is unreachable. Nobody could be saved. So Jesus' reply to them, which takes us right up to today's text, is with man, it is impossible to get into the kingdom, to be saved. But with God, all things are possible to get into the kingdom and to be saved. And so in today's text, Jesus shows us how it's possible how people are saved, and then what's next? 
Because salvation is not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. So let's begin with chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So the first thing being said here is that Jesus accomplished salvation through his death and resurrection. That's point one on your outline. Let me set the scene just a little bit more. This conversation isn't with the crowd anymore. It's with the disciples only. And it doesn't seem to like obviously answer the question of who could be saved. Jesus just now seems to be talking about himself and his death. And the reply of the disciples in verse 34, which is confusion, shows that the answer to the salvation question is even too complex for people who have sat under Jesus' teaching for years. The disciples didn't get it. They walked with him for years. Don't say, if I were there, I would have figured it out. They didn't. And let's consider all this in light of the book of Luke. I mean, Jesus has talked about his own death before. But here in verse 31, he's added something. This is new. He says that his death and resurrection will be how he accomplishes the plan that God has passed down through the prophets over generations. Can I just explain by showing you a small taste of what the prophets said? This is from Isaiah, the last book we studied. Uh, it's from chapter 53. He, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what this says? With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus could have just said Isaiah 53 and sat down, but he didn't. And so it's not clear to the disciples. And I think there's a reason for that. Salvation is possible only if Jesus takes the sin from people onto himself. The only way it's possible is if by Jesus does it, by Jesus doing it alone. And this will kill him, but he will rise and beat death, which back in Genesis was one of the main penalties for sin. Jesus makes salvation possible. That's the answer to the question. How is it possible? By Jesus, by his death and his resurrection. Now contrast this with the rich young ruler who just left. He listed all of his accomplishments as a resume of sorts to try to get into the kingdom. 
And in a way, what he's trying to do is he's trying to take the role of the person in Isaiah 53. By his morals, he is healed. But he can't do that. Since all have gone astray, this is a mission only God's appointed servant can accomplish. To paraphrase the late great theologian R.C. Sproul, people are saved by good works. The works of Christ. So what does this mean for the disciples? It's not simply that their good works won't save them before God like the rich young ruler. In fact, being disciples isn't even enough. Just walking with them. Because if that's true, they might as well go weep with the crowd. Because who can be saved? But it's only if Jesus dies and is resurrected. That's how salvation happens. And the disciples don't get it here, but they will later. So what does this mean for us? Let me speak to those of you who profess to be Christians. If the testimony of your life revolves around what you have done for God, rather than what he has done for you, you have missed the point. And let me explain to you through my own life how easy it is to slide into that. You see, back when I got saved, it was, man, Jesus rescued me and he saved me. But slowly over time, it got watered down a little bit. I started sliding other stuff. Man, I got involved with the best Christian fellowship. Man, I was raised in the church. Man, my mom and dad were so kind. And I subtly make my salvation about me. And don't we do that? Friends, do you know what salvation is? Do you know what your testimony is according to, according to Luke 18? Here's your story. Jesus was delivered over to the Gentiles and was mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Jesus, they killed him. And on the third day, he rose. That's your story. Were you part of a strong church? Did you have good parents? Those are great. How long have you been coming here? Since day one? Fine. Have you kept the commandments since your youth? Great. I'll let you babysit my kids. But friends, none of that saved you. Your story of salvation. Jesus was delivered over to the Gentiles and was mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Jesus, they killed him. And on the third day, he rose. Now, if you're new here, or if you're over there and you have your windows open, or if you're at home and you're not sure about all this, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad your ears work. And I hope you come back every week. And you can get involved in all the great ministries we have, especially setting up Zoom calls. And you can go back to that giving box back there, and you can just empty everything you have into it. That's fine, too. But you know what? None of that is going to save you. You know what can save you? Jesus was delivered over to the Gentiles and was mocked 
and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Jesus, they killed him. And on the third day, he rose. That's what saves you. Friends, do you see the salvation of Jesus? It was accomplished through his death and resurrection. And now, let's put aside the rich young ruler for a minute. Let's put aside our stories, and let's look at the story of a man who runs joyfully into the kingdom of God with absolutely nothing but his faith in Jesus. Let's read verses 35 through 43, and I'm going to take a drink of water. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the, pray, all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the second thing being said here is that Jesus rose, allowed blind people to see salvation. So he didn't just die for them. He then allowed them to see that he died for them. So what's happening here? Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a blind man who's very interested in Jesus. And he's blind, but he's not mute. In fact, he's so loud that people are telling him to stop. But he won't relent. Let me draw attention to what he says to Jesus that's so significant. In verses 38 and 39, he uses the phrase, son of David. Why is that so significant? Because this blind man sees more clearly than anybody else in the crowd, including the disciples, I'm going to add. I mean, this is the confession of the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus just alluded to. And I'll explain this with another brief trip back into the Old Testament. Back in 2 Samuel 7, King David was promised by God to have a descendant who would serve as an eternal king. And this was also later prophesied by Isaiah and a guy named Ezekiel. And so this blind man is recalling all of that and he's saying, Jesus, that's you, son of David. Isaiah 53, right there. He gets it. Friends, this, is, this guy is the opposite, you might say, the rich young ruler. He has literally nothing on earth. He has no support system. He doesn't have a dime to his name, but he knows who Jesus is. And so he has everything. That's your first round pick. One more thing to point out. Jesus asked this man what he wants, and he wants his sight back, and Jesus heals him. Why is this significant? Because most, most of us, 
we read this story, we read it in Sunday school, and we think it's a neat little miracle. But all throughout the Old Testament, the word blindness was often used not to represent physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. It means you can attempt to be religious and moral, rich young man, but you actually couldn't see how far short you were actually falling of God's standard. In other words, you're blind, but you don't know that you're blind. That was Israel's condition. And so in a, while, in a way, this blind man represents what Jesus has come to do. Has he come to heal people? Yeah, but it's to point to something bigger. He has come to make people see the reality of who they are, nothing, who he is, everything, and then he's going to heal them. And he's going to make them able to see that he has healed them. In other words, he allows the man to see physically, but even before that, he has clearly allowed the man to see spiritually. So what does that mean for the original audience? I mean, I would think the people who asked who can be saved and maybe hopefully they stuck around and they put all this together, they'd be stunned. I mean, here they rejoice, right? Why are they rejoicing? Well, to be honest, I think the neat physical healing was probably all they understood. My guess is they were probably more in line with the disciples. But here's what this story tells us, which is cause for even more rejoicing than if somebody who was blind suddenly was able to see. Here's what's worth more rejoicing. What we see from this story is that anybody can be saved. You don't need to be a rich young ruler. You don't even, you don't even need to have working eyes. All you need to do is see who Jesus is. What does that mean for us? Let's, let's think of it. Let's think as a church, kind of reaching out, what I was alluding to earlier. Some of you have been praying for the coronavirus to end. That's not a bad thing. Please keep doing that. But say it does end, and we get back to full strength, and we can go inside and run the air conditioning, and you can leave at 9.55 and still make it on time. And say we grow to a 1,000 people, and we get a huge outreach budget, and we get a full worship band. You know what? If Jesus doesn't open people's eyes, none of that matters. It doesn't matter how big we get. If Jesus does not open the eyes of people, doesn't matter how clear I am, doesn't matter how many times you listen to that recording. If Jesus has not opened your eyes, you won't understand. But on the other hand, say the virus gets worse. Say the pressure to shut down churches, even outside, leads to some really hard decisions. Some of us get sick. Some of us have already gotten sick. Many of us get sick. Some of us die. Say half the people are here in six months. I don't know. 
you know what? If Jesus opens one set of eyes, we have won. Here's another application. If you're new here, or if you're not sure about Christianity, or if you've been kind of debating it for for years or maybe even decades, I mean, don't get me wrong. Please keep asking questions and keep reading your Bible. But let me encourage you that for some of you who have been on the fence, your biggest problem is not lack of evidence. And it's not lack of knowledge. Your problem is you need your eyes to be open. And the same is true for just about everybody out there. They don't need more knowledge usually. (laughs) They just need to have eyes to see. And only Jesus can do that. So what then? Jesus dies and he's raised up and Say we've confessed him as Lord and we're beginning to see with new eyes. Does life now become this kind of cosmic waiting room where you just sing hymns in your room all day and you fellowship waiting for Jesus to come back? You know, if Jesus did all the work to save me, what do I do? Should we become the the polar opposite of the rich young ruler? You know, not keep any commandments? By no means. Let's keep reading and find out what it looks like after your eyes are open. Chapter 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received them joyfully. And when they saw it, that is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to you, or I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The third thing we learn here is that with right eyes, we must then look to repentance. Because you saw, you just saw a lot of good works. So how do they come in? That's what we're looking at. So what's happening? We have a very short man who, unlike the blind man, or who, like the blind man, can't see Jesus very clearly. So he gets into a tree. That's... He can't see his physical form at first. You know, he has to climb. But it's clear that he sees Jesus as the son of David. He's going towards him. He's excited. And so, like the blind man, Jesus is also 
or Zacchaeus is seen by Jesus, who then calls him out of the crowd. Right now, we have a lot of similarities going on. But a few unique things happen that help us interpret what I think this is all about. Because of the crowd in the last story, they rejoiced, right? But here, they grumble. Zacchaeus is apparently a sinner. Now, what does that mean? Because here's the strange part. If you actually look at these verses, there's actually no evidence that Zacchaeus has done anything wrong to the crowd. I mean, in verse 8, as he talks with Jesus, right, he shares all this good stuff he's about to do. He says, if I have defrauded anyone, I'll pay them back four times over. Now, Jesus knows the hearts of all people, and he accepts Jesus, he accepts Zacchaeus' word and said, salvation is here. So as far as I know, this is an upstanding citizen. He hasn't knowingly, grievously gone around like the sneaky guy that a lot of your kids' Bibles probably say he is. There's really no evidence. So why does the crowd grumble? I don't know. Maybe it's simply because they don't like paying taxes. Probably. How many of you like tax collectors? Maybe Zacchaeus was secretly greedy. I mean, it does say that he's rich, and he then says, I'm going to give a lot of money to the poor, so it's assumed that he hasn't been. Maybe. Maybe that's it. But really, what's at the heart is is the contrast between the crowd and Zacchaeus, because this is a story about what repentance really looks like. And by repentance, I mean change. I mean, what it looks like then to follow, in this case, Jesus. The crowd's response is to complain as they see Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus' response is to immediately promise to give away half of everything and then set the bar very high for his own work as a tax collector. This man has changed. So how does this connect to the rest of the Bible? What else do we learn here? Well, in verse 9 of of Luke 19 here, Zacchaeus is called a son of Abraham. That means he's Jewish. So remember in Isaiah when Jesus is prophesied to die for sinners? Well, a whole bunch of Isaiah is actually aimed at Israel, how far they've fallen, how much their people have have destroyed their own, they've mocked God, the rich have oppressed the poor. Here's how Isaiah described Israel. It's just a sampling of Zacchaeus' ancestors. Isaiah chapter 5, just a couple verses. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Friends, the reason why Israel was overrun and so many people are huddled up in Rome right now is because Israel had a rich history of hating God, hating their neighbor, and oppressing their own people. The people in power oppressed the people who had no power. 
the tax collectors oppressed the people, among other things. But right here, now, in front of Jesus, one of Israel's own sees clearly, and his response to seeing Jesus is to break the family curse. We're now seeing a tax collector as he should be. Zacchaeus is one such man of the remnant of Israel that was promised. So, what does all this mean for the original audience? Salvation is made manifest by a life of repentance. Let me explain that. When I say the word repentance again, I mean change. So in other words, a person who is saved by Jesus, their life's work is not simply, I will now ask for forgiveness when I sin, and then I'll just keep doing what I was doing. Consider Zacchaeus' change. Beyond that, what, what it means that salvation is made manifest by a lifetime of repentance is that a person can't simply use their behavior to then get the salvation. Consider the rich young ruler. No, a saved person does good things to show the best thing. The best thing is their salvation, which Jesus has bought for them with his own blood by dying and being raised to life. And so from all of that, the aim of this whole text, this whole story is to show you here today that the hope of your salvation is external. It is not internal. Faith in Jesus's accomplished mission is alone what motivates the good work that you do. Two applications. First, whether Christian or not, I must ask you, what is your motivation for the work that you do? I'll use a common example. If you're a Christian and you struggle with guilt, like all the time, when you fail, or you just try to pretend that you don't, it may be that underneath your polished exterior, you are looking for your works to justify you, and you are rightfully sad because it's not working. God is merciful to make you sad about that. Because he's allowing you the opportunity to see that Isaiah 53 is not about you. And if that's you, then to be honest, you might simply be thinking of yourself too much. In the words of Robert McShane, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Maybe your problem is you just don't think about Jesus very much. And on the other hand, if you're on the fence about Christianity, and, you're, and I'm asking you to consider your motivation, you might be secretly thinking you can just ride it out, not commit any big sins, maybe be more moral than the guy next to you, 
and somehow God's going to let it slide. If that's you, go back to the story of the rich young ruler, because if he can't buy his way in, you can't. So what to do for the guilty? For those who are considering their motivations, remember, you can't and you didn't buy your own salvation. Who else but Jesus can save? And so in keeping with that, who else but Jesus can motivate your change? Who else? So even as a Christian, when you fail in your repentance, don't feel like you need to earn your way back in. Go to the cross. I got one other application. And it's in keeping with the good works that Zacchaeus did. And it's related to a subtle way that I think a lot of Christians can put the cart of good works ahead of the horse of salvation, so to speak. It's a way that you can get it wrong. And it's very, very, very subtle. I want you to beware of this dangerous phrase. Get ready. Here's the phrase, live out the gospel. Have you heard it? Live out the gospel. Here's how it works. You become a Christian. That's good. So far, so good. Then you find something good to do. Maybe you work in full-time missions. Maybe you work at a pregnancy resource clinic. Maybe you hand out Bibles and tracts on the street. Maybe you preach at a church. Maybe you're like Zacchaeus, and now your business model is built on generosity and giving away a lot of money. Those are all good things. But then, slowly, your thing becomes the thing. Have you felt it? Wait, wait, you're not doing my thing? Yeah, you're not working at a clinic? What do you hate, babies? Right? Wait, you don't want to invest in campus ministry? What do you hate, college students? You're not preaching? What do you hate, the Bible? And man, let's take it one step further. If your thing is taken away from you, then you start to wonder, am I a Christian? What do I do? I don't have my thing. What's just happened? You were trying to so hard to make the gospel about what you do that you forgot that the gospel was done by Jesus for you. And so now... When you get that correctly, out of the joy of your salvation, there are a million things you can do. Friend, you are not living out the gospel. If Jesus has saved you, your life of repentance, your life of change is simply responding to the gospel. Don't get it twisted. So in keeping with that, 
I do not want to be overly prescriptive. You given half to the poor? What are you not saved? Instead, I'm going to close with a short story of somebody who modeled this life of repentance very well. You might say he almost he almost seems like he did it all. And then I'm going to ask you to consider how you might respond. This story is of a man named Paul. Paul came after Jesus. He was an apostle. Paul lived a bold life. Paul debated in temples and in public spaces. In fact, if Paul were alive today, he'd probably be on Facebook every now and then mixing it up. You know, I'd like to think so. Paul also gave generously to the poor, especially the churches. Paul got on boats. Paul got shipwrecked. Paul got thrown in jail. Paul planted churches. And Paul trained church leaders. And in his writings to those churches, he demonstrated a knowledge and insight of the scripture that puts most of us to shame. Paul did many things. And guess what? You're probably not going to do all those things. But you know what? Some of you might. I don't know. That's not my point. The point is this. It's not about what Paul did. It's about why Paul did it. Because Paul did all of this because many years before, Paul lived blindly, religiously, having Christians killed for their belief in Jesus, thinking he was doing the right thing. But you know what? Even before that, Jesus gave his life and died and rose again for people like Paul. And then one day Jesus, quite literally, opened Paul's eyes so that he could see clearly. And his response was to do those things. Friends, that is what salvation is about. And so my closing question is this. Do you see it? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray that anyone here who has missed the point for years sees a little bit more clearly today. Lord, I pray that anybody listening at home or even within the sound of my voice sees a bit more clearly this morning. But Lord, it's not by the preaching. It's not by the speakers. It's that their eyes were open. Would you open eyes through our simple preaching of the gospel? Lord, thank you for who you are. Amen.